Hi everyone, welcome to The Raw Show with Michael McDonald and I have a very special guest. We have Cathy O'Dowd joining me today. Cathy, thank you for being a guest on the show. It's a pleasure. Cathy is the first South African to climb Everest and the first woman in the world to climb Everest from both sides. Because there's two sides to a mountain. She has, <laughs> she has turned that success into a 20 plus year career as an internationally known motivational speaker. She shares her experience on Himalayan teams with corporate leaders interested in leadership, team dynamics and goal achievement. As a side project, she runs a website, The Business Adventure, to help younger adventurers find ways to fund their challenges and monetize their achievements. So we've got quite definitely uh, an inspirational story to say the least to kick us off so I thought we would start with your background if that's okay Kathy. so would you be able to share with me and our listeners where you were born and what it was like for you growing up well I wasn't born where you'd expect given uh, the CV you just read out <laughs> I'm South African I was born in Johannesburg and my parents lived in the suburbs, very conventional. My father was a businessman. My mother was a, mostly a housewife. And I mean, Johannesburg's on this huge flat grass plain. There isn't a mountain in sight. And the most exciting thing that my parents did was go on day walks when they went to the beach for the summer holidays. You know, there was absolutely no reason that I should have turned into a, a mountain climber or turned out to be obsessed with snow and glaciers and hail. <laughs> I found mountains through the ubiquitous teenage summer camp uh, to the Drakensberg in South Africa. And that's where I first camped and hiked and rock climbed. And still nowhere to go. This is long before commercial expeditions or indoor climbing gyms or any of this stuff. So when I got to university, I joined the rock climbing club. And honestly, that's in seven years of postgraduate, well, of graduate education, that's the most useful thing I did for my career was to join the rock climbing club. <laughs> and yeah, that was the beginning of an adventure that started with sort of, you know, classic rock climbing up 20 meter high rock walls, which is something I still do. And 10 years later ended up on the summit of Everest, which then just opened so many new possibilities for me. So what drew you into taking Everest on? Because obviously there are more than just the one mountain out there that's possible. So was it just a challenge or was there more to it? Oh, I had no interest in doing Everest right up until I was actually going. I was still wasn't. Uh, I've never pursued Everest as a goal. I liked climbing. I started with rock climbing. I moved on to altitude, Central Africa, the Ruinsori Mountains, 5,000 meters, the, the Andes in Bolivia, 6,000 meters, a season in the Alps. And then I wanted to go to the Himalaya, anywhere in the Himalaya. But again, this is before commercial expeditions. Travel was really quite tricky for South Africans still. And I just couldn't see a way to get there. And then I picked up a newspaper back in 1995, in November, and there was a big front page splash about the first South African Everest expedition, all men. But then underneath it was a thing that they were running a competition to find a girl to join the team. I mean, seriously, there was a headline, are you our woman with the balls for the summit? It's just cringeworthy. You know, you <laughs> just knew that the whole thing was a media stuff. Yeah. But... It was a media stunt with an outcome that was interesting. And it wasn't even Everest, because the, before that, they were going to choose a shortlist of six, and they'd get to go and climb Kilimanjaro as a kind of selection procedure. And given how few women climbed in South Africa, I thought I had a reasonable shot at making the shortlist. And then I'd get a free trip to Kilimanjaro. So you know how bad it can be? Mm, yeah. So... Despite having dis distinct reservations about what was quite clearly a media stunt, I applied, made the shortlist. Actually, as soon as I had applied, I started training as if I was going to Everest, just in case. I made the shortlist, went to Kilimanjaro, and then got invited to join the Everest team. Still not with the assumption that I was going for the top. I was joining as an apprentice, which honestly is how you learned back then. 
you know, before nowadays we have more commercial training courses, but back then you just went with people who were better than you and learned from them and see how far you can go. So I still thought of Everest as kind of an, a Himalayan apprenticeship, just on Everest rather than some other mountain. It wasn't great. Clearly the men on the team were not particularly keen on me uh, because, you know, this was a media stunt and I had got a lot more media attention than they had, which they didn't like. So it was yeah. pretty uncomfortable joining the team. And the team itself, even without me, there were some personality clashes within the group, bad ones. So there was, there was infighting going on almost before we left South Africa. So it was a, a very uncomfortable experience in certain ways. But what's interesting about that, actually, you know, the, the upside of sort of uncomfortable opportunities in life, the fact that the team dynamic was so toxic and then three people walked out before we got to base camp and then those of us who were left behind kind of had to reform ourselves as a team and try and tackle Everest, although some of the strongest climbers had left. That was a fascinating case study in team dynamic, both failure and success of team dynamic. And that was actually the beginning of my corporate speech work, structuring it not around how do you conquer Everest, but around why do teams fail and why do teams succeed? And what can you do as a team member and a leader to try and minimize failure and maximize success? So I didn't know it at the time, but it was amazing material to be living through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So did you do anything in particular training-wise before you went? So one of the things that stuck out was the, the fact that you then started to train and see if you were going to Everest. So what sort of things did you do? Well, preparedness for a big mountain like this consists of three things. And physical training is only one of them, although it's the one that people tend to focus on. Honestly, it's endurance fitness. Living in Johannesburg, that was a little difficult. So I used to go hiking or jogging with a big rucksack on. And in South Africa, it's like America. Nobody walks anywhere. You drive. So I remember being out there with a big rucksack on and having some poor woman stop in her car and like, are you all right, dear? And she obviously thought my boyfriend had chucked me out and I had all my belongings on my back and nowhere to go. <laughs> she, was, she was trying to be nice. I'm like, oh, I'm training to climb Everest. Really? Yeah. <laughs> So yes, tricky. Uh, yeah. Treadmill on an incline, always with a rucksack on your back. Um, so it's about endurance fitness. And then for a woman particularly, you probably need to up, work on your upper body strength. So there's a certain amount of upper body weight training. But that's only one of three aspects. The second aspect is then mental preparedness. And that's kind of tricky when it's your first big Himalayan expedition because you don't know what to be prepared for mentally. So yeah. for me, that was reading all the books I could get my hands on, looking at photographs, looking at maps, just trying to be able to visualize as best as I could what the experience might be like and visualize myself coping in that environment. And then the third aspect of it is skill. And that's about rope management, uh, use of crampons and ice axes, understanding how to navigate a glacier, uh, understanding how to recognize an avalanche slope, understanding how to anticipate and deal with weather change, understanding how to live in very cold conditions. And there isn't really an easy shortcut for that. That needs to be something you've built up, you know, over years of just doing this stuff. But fortunately, as I said, I'd been to the Andes and the Alps and Central Africa, so I had some foundation for that. Right. So what, what was it actually like to, to go up to, to Everest on, on both sides then? So this can be where you, you sort of talk about how maybe it could relate to the business side afterwards, but what's it actually like to get to the top of Everest? You, you mentioned people, people kind of turned around and went back before they got to base camp and you got to base camp and then get into the, the top. What was that like? That's a big question in the sense <laughs> that, you know, we arrived at base camp and we only got to the summit nine weeks later. 
there's a lot that happens in that time. And certainly on my first Everest expedition, it was made worse because halfway through, there was a huge storm. We were trying, we, well, we thought we were going to make a summit bid and we'd moved up to the top camp. So the top camp's at 8,000 meters. And this big storm came in. Uh, we decided not to go for the summit the day before because the weather seemed unstable. And we knew we weren't very experienced. But three other teams went, got to the top, and then got caught in the storm on the way down. And five climbers were killed in the storm, including two team leaders, people with you know, extensive experience. So in the middle of this climb, we walked straight into living through this disaster, which of course has impact on you on the mountain. I mean, we know we're taking risk. It's, you really shouldn't be on Everest if you're surprised to find out that people can die in mountains. And mm. it doesn't have to be Everest. It can be Ben Nevis. Yeah. It can be Snowden. Um, but nevertheless, you don't expect it to actually happen to you or to people you've met or, you know, literally physically around you. So it, it's a big shock to kind of live through that and then decide what you're going to do afterwards. But also, because this was 1996, it was the very first season, just about, when expeditions had websites. It was right at the beginning of the new internet-connected world, where news goes around the world in 24 hours. And it was the first time that an Everest disaster had kind of played out live in, in international media. So all sorts of people who knew nothing about Everest were now, you know, following us, all the teams, the season, as if it was a TV soap opera. And of course, everyone had an opinion and lots of them were negative. So there was this swirling, confused, uh, worldwide attention around the climb, which was new to almost everybody. I said, we weren't yet used to living in an internet-connected world. So yeah, that, that, those two things made it a strange experience. And then we decided to try again after the storm. And that's interesting because I think when things go badly wrong, all you can really do, assuming you, you, know, you, you got through it, is decide how you're going to think about it. And so some people, not on, on other teams, thought of it as this terrible disaster and my God, it could have been me, I can't possibly go back up there. And it had enough. They gave up. Myself and my, my team, we tended to think, well, you know, we didn't do anything very heroic, but we didn't make any mistakes. We actually survived a disaster, a huge storm, and we managed well. We were careful and conservative, and we didn't panic. We didn't do anything stupid. And therefore, if we got up there in good conditions, maybe we can genuinely get to the top. And it was never obvious that our little team wasn't, were summit contenders. So we came out of it with confidence to try again in good conditions, which is what we eventually did, uh, got to the top. So that's great. That's a triumph, you know, super exciting. And I didn't really believe I was going to get to the top until the actual morning that it happened. <laughs> About eight o'clock in the morning, I climbed over a, a summit, which allowed me to see the final knife edge ridge to the, mm. the true top of Everest. Yeah. And in the middle of that knife edge ridge is a rock climb called the Hillary Step. And everyone always goes on about the Hillary Step and how difficult it's going to be. And uh, you can't see it. It's just this mythical final obstacle that you have to overcome. And I, I got up there at eight o'clock in the morning, saw the ridge, saw the Hillary Step and thought, oh, I can climb that. That's not bad. <laughs> so, in some ways, that was the best moment, not the summit. As soon as I get to the summit, I'm starting to worry about getting down again. Because, you know, it's not a marathon. It's not over at the top. It's over when you're back at base camp. Uh, so the best moment was actually knowing that I was going to get to the top. And it's not over at the top because we had a member of the team killed on the way down. So triumph turned into tragedy in about 12 hours, which was an enormous emotional whiplash. Mm. To go from wow. one thing to the other was just devastating. Uh, so, yeah, complicated expedition. 
but it did mean that I came back to South Africa and everybody in South Africa knew about us. You know, whether they'd ever seen a mountain or cared about mountain climbing, it didn't matter. We had turned into a national soap opera. And although a lot of that was really uncomfortable because there was a lot of media criticism, it was in there was a lot of opportunity to write a book, to start to give speeches to companies being paid for it and, and paid well, and to, to raise further sponsorship. And yeah, just, just thinking about that. The other thing I got out of it isn't just the opportunities, but because it was such a public failure in a funny sort of way, uh, because of all the team infighting and Bruce getting killed and, I'd never really failed publicly like that or been publicly criticized like that. It's, it's horrible, but it's really quite helpful because it made me a lot less afraid to fail at something. It's like, oh, I've done this. I survived, you know, and I've done more in my life because I've been less afraid of failure because of having to walk through that fire on that first expedition. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it is. What? Because you you mentioned that you, you actually felt confident when you were were actually at the other side of the storm, and you, you mentioned that it was about how you actually thought about it. So, how, how did you think about it? And you know, how would you say it led to your confidence versus you know trying to be quite quite doubtful about that you were going to get there? And is there anything that maybe you could think about? that actually led to that more positive outcome of the storm rather than the, the negative version? It's an interesting question because I'm not quite sure how much of it is about sort of cons consciously chosen mindset and how much of it is about your natural character and so you can't necessarily change that as mm. to whether you see the positive or the negative in an experience. Yeah. So one of the things that's important to me, despite the fact that I climb mountains and people think it's, oh, conquering summits, goal achievement, like bollocks. No, it's not. <laughs> uh, sorry about that. But seriously, it isn't. You know, you spend 10 minutes on the summit of Everest and you've spent nine weeks trying. That is yeah. not a rational, you know, balance. It's about the journey. We climb because climbing is fun. It's interesting. It's challenging. And yes, it's more fun if I get to the summit. But if I don't, that doesn't mean the rest of the experience doesn't exist. It's important. It's been, it's been interesting. I've learned stuff. I've become more confident. I've, you know, I'll do better on the next challenge because of what I found out on this one. So it's about the process. And all the way up Everest, I wasn't ever thinking, I'm going to summit. And I saw a lot of people who sort of assumed that they would, and then they got terribly discouraged when it became clear that it was harder than they thought. Mm. And hard in ways that weren't very, you know, dramatic. Uh, people realizing that they were crumbling emotionally rather than physically. You know, failing physically sounds dramatic. Failing because you're just bloody sick of the entire experience. That's not you know, dramatic. It's not positive. And a lot of people sort of crumbled when they realized that it was emotionally harder than they thought. Whereas I think because I was going up the thing going like, huh, I've got this far. That's cool. Okay. Next stage, you know, next camp, next day, next hour, next 10 steps. I felt as if I was racking up little successes and slowly building my confidence as I climbed. And look, as I said, surviving that storm, you could look at it and say, my God, people died. We must give up. You're like, well, you kind of knew that before we started. Or you could look at it and say, we didn't die. What did we do right? And this is slightly uncomfortable, but you look at the people who got killed and say, well, what, what mistakes did they make? Not that I'm saying that I think that it's about blame because we're human it's almost impossible not to make mistakes. And a, a lot, we go through life making mistakes and getting away with them. 
And when things go badly wrong, it's often because we made a mistake and bad luck meant we weren't able to get away with it. So it's not about blame, but it is about looking at what happened and saying, okay, so we don't want to do that. We don't want to make that mistake. We need to be careful here. Okay, we will balance out. We'll make our own plan with all those ideas in mind. So, yeah, it's about yeah. finding <clears throat> strength in surviving an experience and thinking, I now know more. I've got better tools. I've got more information. I can step into the future with more confidence rather than feeling overwhelmed and put off by a, by a negative experience. Yeah, I mean, just, just on what you said there, there's a few things that, that really stuck in my mind was that, you know, people that had the, the summit in mind, you know, people that had the, I'm going to go to the summit and, and all this kind of thing. And when it actually became, you know, clear to them that they weren't actually going to be able to get there, then they actually feel worse. And from a, from a business perspective, that's almost like setting goals. If you set goals that are too far away, <clears throat> goals that could be too big or too difficult, and you're, you're so focused on achieving it, if something hits you and you finally realize that maybe it's not actually going to happen as, as quickly as I wanted it to, I'd imagine a lot of people would get quite discouraged from that so that's one of the the first things that stuck out to me and then another thing was that it's impossible to to not make mistakes we're always going to make mistakes mm -hmm. at some point and one of the things that that kind of made me sort of pause a little bit was a, a lot of us are always making mistakes but we end up getting away with them by some stroke of luck or genius or or whatever the case is I mean what are your thoughts on that? That's really interesting because it affects the way that we, we understand risk and we understand our own judgment. So in high altitude mountaineering, there's less of this kind of safety research. But I do a lot of backcountry skiing. That's what I was doing this morning. And there's a lot more research there because most backcountry skiers, if they die, they die in avalanches. And they are normally avalanches triggered by their own body weight. This is not, you know, coming down from above. This is a fragile snow slope, invisibly fragile, broke under your body weight. So the question is, how do you recognize an invisibly fragile snow slope? And you can't, not with absolute certainty. So we, we have to train for this stuff. And even so, we can't be sure. So every time we ski a slope and it doesn't avalanche, was that skill or was that luck? We don't know because we only know we've got it wrong the day that it actually avalanches under us. So you go through life thinking you're skillful when actually you're just lucky. And I think the truth is that there's a big gray area and we can't be sure. I mean, on Everest, I've seen both things happen. You know, a team decides to back off because conditions look unfavorable. Another team gets to the summit. Does that mean that you were too cautious? Or does that, that mean that they took an insane risk and they were just lucky to get away with it? Who knows? You know, sometimes you just have to live with the way it works and accept that you can control a lot of it, but not all of it. It's the same when people, you know, are doing startups or small businesses. You know, everyone always starts with great expectations, but the truth is the majority will fail eventually. And when do you give up? I've had friends, same discussion, you know, when we're trying to raise money for an expedition and it just doesn't seem to come together. How long do you keep on trying? When do you cut your losses and walk away? Mountaineering, there's some mountains that you shouldn't climb. The weather changes, the snow's unstable. And you can't be quite sure that giving up is the right decision, but, you know, live and climb another day seems like a good philosophy too. There are two goals. The one is the summit, the other's coming home alive. And you're trying to keep the goals aligned, but they may shift out of alignment. And you've got to recognize that shift and then start making choices. And you may have to make the choice that makes you look like a failure, but allows you to live and, and climb again. So I'm always interested in when to give up. And you know, what, are you, what is your real goal? In mountaineering, we talk about summit fever. That's when people lose sight of the coming home alive thing. They get completely fixated on the summit as the goal and they forget that there are two goals in play. 
And if they're not aligned, you need to be making the right choice about which one to pursue. Yeah, I, I can sort of see how how that can relate a lot in the the business world as well. Is that like a lot a lot of people you might chase let's just say income as an example, they might chase an income whereby there's, there's another goal at play, which could be the lifestyle that they want as a result of having the business that they want. So there's, there's a lot that, that goes into it. I can definitely understand where, <clears throat> where that would come into it. So what, what were the first things that, that ran through your mind when you actually got home safe? You know, what was you got up and down again and, and everything else? What, what ran through your mind at that point? Well, yes, again, that's very hard to answer because, as I said, we'd had a team member killed on the way down. So it was such a, a confused experience. Yeah. Um, you, know, with a, you know, was I still allowed to be proud of what I'd done given what had happened? Uh, and then you're trying to... People are like, well, how could you possibly do that? And you're kind of trying to justify taking these kinds of risks. One, on the other hand, not trying to sound callous or uncaring. And it was, it was horrible. But I think in the end, I feel that life is, is for the living. I mean, my oldest brother was killed in a car crash when he was 21. It was back in the day and he wasn't wearing a seatbelt. If he'd been wearing a seatbelt, he would have lived. You know, who, knew, who knew that was coming in his life? Yeah. I don't think it's worth wrapping ourselves in bubble wrap and sitting on the sofa in the hope that we'll live to be 100. I mean, that just sounds boring. Yeah. I think life is about identifying what we're good at, where our potential and our passion and our interest lies, and then committing ourselves to that and trying to get the most out of it. And that will involve taking risks. And some of them will be financial risks and some of them will be, you know, life risks. But either way, we don't know how much time we've got and we don't know what the end is going to be. So we may as well get on with living every day with as much commitment and excitement and passion as we can. And for me, that, that includes, you know, not every day, but, you know, taking some risks in the backcountry because I've just learned so much about myself and about success and about failure and about risk management and I've just had so much fun it isn't all learning a lot of it is just like wow this is so cool <laughs> yeah so yeah I've got so much out of climbing that I feel it's worth you know the risks that I've, I've taken to do that yeah what what would you say were the the main things that you did get out from climbing and after you answer that we'll probably dive into the the more business side of after the climb after everest what happened next but firstly what what did you actually get out of of climbing a couple of things confidence i grew up as a a sort of a nerdy well academic middle class young woman and not keen on failing at things, which meant I didn't try things, at least, you know, in a, in a sort of business or academic sense, where I wasn't fairly certain I was going to succeed, you know, beforehand. And you, you don't achieve much that way because you never push yourself. You never take any risks. And somehow I was happier to take risk in climbing. And then I was able to bring that confidence and that understanding of how to manage risk back into the rest of my life. So I've done more. I've been more ambitious because of the confidence I gained from trying things in climbing that were frightening or uncertain or uh, felt like they might be beyond my, my reach and discovering that, that I could do them. So that's been important. I think a second thing has been the fact that because we do take, at least on some of the bigger projects, potentially life-threatening risk. You have to be really quite considered. Why am I doing this? What do I think I'm getting out of it that makes it worth this risk? And of course, the risk isn't just to me. As we realize, it has you know, profound effects on the people who get left behind. Uh, you are you know, part of a network of, of the people who love you and they are impacted by, by my choices. But it's meant that I think my life is more considered about what I want to get out of it, 
what I'm prepared to risk to do that, why I think it's worth it, uh, when I'm prepared to fail or walk away from a project because it's no longer worth it. And I sometimes feel that quite a lot of people just go through life reacting to what happens to them or reaching out for success that is somehow promoted by the culture that they're born into is not necessarily the success that they're actually interested in or would like for themselves in retrospect, but they chase it because that's what we're given at school, university, in the media as success, whether it's chasing large amounts of money or having children or conventional family or whatever it is. Uh, you have to really know yourself and think about what you want if you're going to step out of some of those grooves in our culture. And being a climber and choosing to face up to risk has helped me be considered about what I think, what I value in life and what, I can, what success means to me. So, yeah, I think those are the two big things I've got out of climbing, apart from just having a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they, 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 sound quite, they sound quite powerful, really. And how, how did you get into the, the business of sharing your message then? So sort of take us to, to Post Everest and on what, on, on what was it like to share your message on a more, a more wider and more global scale? It happened to me. This is not a career that I set out to create, although it's one that turned out to suit me very well. So, as I said, that Everest expedition, the first one was just this huge media firestorm. And I got back to South Africa to find that they were speaker bureaus. These are companies that sit between individual speakers and companies looking for a speaker at a big conference. Uh, so speaker bureaus were saying, we have corporate clients who would pay to hear your story. And honestly, at that point, it was just gossip. They simply wanted to know what actually happened on this extraordinary expedition, you know, this incredibly yeah. controversial expedition. But I'd been a university lecturer before this, so I could give a speech. That didn't worry me. And suddenly I had this really interesting story to tell. And as I mentioned, some really complicated team dynamics. And a, a friend of mine who was a corporate trainer, he ran these day-long you know, outdoor teamwork exercise events for corporate clients. Uh, he took me out to lunch and listened to me go on for about four hours about, oh, I can't believe how our team fell apart. And, you know, we were all adults who loved mountaineering. Why did we, you know, fight like this? And he just rolled his eyes and said, Ken Blanchard, who at that time was famous for the one minute manager, uh, but he was also famous for a theory of team development forming, storming, norming, performing. And Chris just rolled his eyes and said, you guys are a classic for this. You aren't different. You're just a cliche for team conflict. <laughs> like, huh, okay, that's interesting. So I went off and read, read a whole lot of, of management theory about team development and started to use that to structure the speeches. Because I didn't really want to talk about me. That's kind of a bit uncomfortable. I was... I felt much more comfortable talking about the team, the experience, and then having the structure about, okay, we took storming, which is the conflict stage, a little too far. <laughs> you know, this is why we fell into it. And in retrospect, these are the things we should have done to extricate ourselves from it. And then this is how those of us who stayed pulled ourselves together back into the norming phase. And then how do you get from there into the high performance stage? And to some extent, that was the storm. The crisis of the storm kicked us up a notch as a team, really pulled us together and gave us extra confidence, along with a couple of other things, which included a telephone call from Nelson Mandela, who at that time was president of South Africa, who phoned us halfway up Everest. Uh, so, you know, there's some lovely elements to the story. And, and that just worked for the corporate clients. And suddenly I wasn't just, you know, the 15 minutes of fame couple of speeches for a few months and then everyone loses interest. Now I, I had effectively a product that sold and sold and sold. And 20 years later, I still have clients who, it's not all that I do, but I still have clients who want that team dynamic story from Everest. Uh, it's, yeah, it's been a gift that never stopped giving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, um, the forming, storming, norming, performing, that's something that I'm reasonably familiar with. Um, I'm not, I'm probably not as, as up on it as you are, but um, it's something that, that has been, caught my attention before, 
So I, I do, I do understand it, and it seems, it seems to me at least, to be that this is why things like tough mudder and the likes exist. It's like it tends to be the the struggle and working as a team to get through the struggle does tend mm-hmm. to, to actually cause us to bond that little bit further. What do you think on that? Absolutely. I think the thing is, what you can't do is just get a group of people in a room and to say you're a team. I mean, you you can. Uh, But the truth is, to actually feel like a team, to work together as a team, it will take time. People will need to come to respect each other, trust each other, and understand how each person fits into this new organism, which is the team. And then within that, you still have to respect the fact that it is actually just a group of individuals, and you have to create space for their personal ambitions and their, their personalities, their style of working. So teams are created over time. And in finding your place, there will inevitably be conflict. But a good team leader, and frankly, a good team member, because I don't think team members should just be sitting there going like, oh, it's the leader's fault. You know, what are we supposed to do about it? Everybody could actually step up and do something about the dynamic of a group. So good team members, good team leaders recognize that conflict is inevitable, but there are ways of acknowledging it and managing it that will make it less damaging. Whereas ignoring it tends to make it considerably worse and it ends up in a crisis. And then once you've gone beyond that, the question is how do you take a team and bring them from being average up to being high performing? What does it take to make people really feel we're in this together and we're good and we're better because of each other. We're better together than I would be alone. And that's where you start having a really powerful group. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's All right. Well, I, yeah, I can't, unfortunately, I, I can't let you mention Nelson Mandela's phone call and, and, not, and not talk about that. So, <laughs> so are you able to, to share what, what the conversation was? Of course. Um, and actually, I think it's a very interesting point because when we try and motivate people, you know, more money, rewards, away days, you know, God knows, whatever. The truth is we tend to overlook something that's very powerful and very cheap and it's recognition. So in our case, this is after the big storm. We're trying again. This is partly on the advice of the Sherpas who are very aware that after big storms, you tend to get stable weather. But nevertheless, I mean, it does feel like a hell of a thing to go back up onto this mountain after five people just died on it. Mm-hmm. And we're halfway up at Camp 2, and this phone call comes through. And we don't believe them when they tell us it's Nelson Mandela. <laughs> <laughs> and he basically says, I'm proud of you for trying again, and I believe you can do this. But of course, you know, he's never climbed a mountain. He's got no idea whether we can do it. You know, he really has no idea. But it's just that voice or that vote of confidence, this man who's so important in our lives. Because, you know, honestly, he he was the most famous South African and much loved by whites and blacks alike. So this man is on the phone going, I believe in you. It's like, yeah. I'm not saying that we were going to, you know, rush off up and get ourselves killed if the conditions were rarely bad but we were going to try just that much harder and i think it's a trick that people miss and this is everybody even if you're two years into your career in business in in adulthood there are already younger people looking up to you wondering how you got there and if you look back to the people who work for you or work with you and go like yeah you i know your name i'm Glad you work with me. I'm proud of the work you do. If you see their work and publicly acknowledge it, I think that's one of the best ways to motivate people. And it's so easily overlooked. Everyone's looking upwards, straining to get to the next, you know, the next advancement, the next promotion. We don't spend enough time looking back and being decent and encouraging and and respectful of the work being done by the people who work under us or for us. Yeah, yeah, it's it's amazing how how 
one little thing, one small thing can can make the biggest difference if it's if it's given by the right person or the right people. And yeah, it's I guess it's it's you then being on the giving end of of that sort of talk as well. Like you've gone from receiving it from from Nelson Mandela to being able to actually deliver that sort of thing yourself. So it's been a bit of a it's been a bit of a journey to to say the least. And what what drew you to then deciding to help other people that that are these kind of adventurer types to to actually start a business and monetize things around it? Well, sort of to summarize, I spent the next 20 years uh, giving speeches to companies right around the world. I've been to, I think, 44 countries now giving paid speeches and, and climbing and skiing. I've moved myself from South Africa to Europe because I think what is important is, is not just doing the big projects, but actually living somewhere that feels right. So for me, that was finding somewhere where I could ski and climb and run in the mountains, you know, out of my front door on a daily basis, which is what I now do. But nevertheless, somewhere in there, giving the speeches to these big corporate clients, you know, I spend a kind of an hour with them and then I, I, I disappear again. Well, it's, it's fun. I like doing it. It's also, I don't know, a little lacking in impact and wasn't keeping me connected with what was actually happening in the climbing and adventure community, which has changed enormously. You know, I started climbing before we had mobile phones and let alone satellite phones, uh, before social media, before websites. Um, it's, it's so different now. And I was getting more and more young climbers and young adventurers reaching out to me on things like LinkedIn, going, well, where do I start? How do I find sponsorship? How do I, you know, I want to be a professional adventurer. I'm like, well, what does that mean? And I saw more and more websites starting up in the last couple of years, which are very inspirational, sharing stories of men and women doing adventurous things, uh, promoting a message that anyone can do it, but some of it's very unrealistic. When they tell you, oh, throw your fears to the wind, 25 pounds in your back pocket and just step outside, like, yeah, right. Those are normally, you know, with respect, middle-class white men. And if it goes really wrong, they'll phone their parents who will bail them out with, you know, daddy's credit card. Yeah. Or they travel through the world on a British passport with a white skin and male privilege and go like, oh, this is easy. Well, yeah, you know, you have to yeah. think about why it's easy. And so I wanted not to be inspirational. I wanted to be practical. You know, that question, when you, when you come up with your crazy idea and your mother just looks at you and goes, that's nice, dear. How are you going to pay for it? I wanted to help people answer that question. Well, frankly, the second part of the question, having done it, whatever it may be, you may have done it with your own money. It's a good place to start. How are you going to monetize it? You know, there are books to be written, there are speeches to be given, there are, there are films to be made. There are ways of using it to get corporate sponsorship for the next project. But that's business. You need to think of it like that. You need to treat it like that. So much, so many of us romanticize the wilderness and climbing and adventure, and you know, it's, it's reconnecting with nature and your inner soul and this, that, and the other. And it somehow feels grubby to talk about money, but money makes life a lot easier. <laughs> but yeah, I set up this website, the Business of Adventure, and you know, our newsletter and stuff to try and help people get thoroughly practical and business like about the money side of adventure. Yeah, it seems to me like it, it touches on like how to turn like a person into a business to a certain extent. Because if you're someone mm -hmm. that that goes on traveling and adventures and climbs and takes on these reasonably difficult challenges and you are potentially inspirational to a lot of people, you then need to have that conversation of, well, what, what can I do about that? Like, what, what can I do with the things that could very well come my way? And I like that, that you're able to do that. 
So what what would you recommend as a, a parting piece of guidance to, to our listeners regards to adventure or regards to trying to potentially monetize the experience? And then we'll, we'll dive into the, the uh, last couple of questions. I think the big challenge about monetizing adventure is an adventurer, and this can be anybody. It can be a climber, a skier, a, a desert walker, a you know, human endurance athlete. You are the brand, and that's hard. So the first point is, if this just makes you absolutely cringe inside, don't. Get a proper job, earn decent money, and spend your own money on adventures. And then you don't need to be a brand and you don't need to present yourself to the media. You can just go off and have fun in your own time. There's a lot to be said for earning your money some other way and just paying for it yourself. For those people who are prepared uh, to turn it into a business, you're going to have to think of yourself as a brand, and then you need to think through how much you're prepared to do that. The other thing that I think is important to understand is there's not one source of income. There are essentially about eight different income streams. It's like the delta of a river. And you're going to need to weave a tapestry, pulling money from all those different streams. You're never going to find one easy source of money. Uh, and effectively, most people will end up specializing in one of the categories or two. So, for example, I specialize in the speaking, which is one of the better ways of making money after adventures. But it will probably be supported by some of the other ways. So I have a book, for example, about my Everest climbs, uh, still in print after all these years. I still get royalties. But honestly, the royalties buy me lunch sort of every six months. You know, they're not <laughs> paying the mortgage. No. But the book is like this extended business card. The book has been really useful in getting me corporate events, publicity, you know, entrances into places where I can then get money through sponsorship or through speeches. So it's about using the different income streams to kind of buttress each other while finding the place where you individually are best able to make money. So on one hand, I really like it. I mean, I like it because it's so personal. I work on what I want to work on. This is why being a solopreneur is fun. I'm the boss. This isn't someone else's work. This is my work. It's making my life interesting and fruitful and full of opportunity and, and earning money. Of course, the downside is I'm also, I'm the boss, but I'm also the tea girl. You know, I have to do all the grunt work because yeah. there's no one else. And no. I, start, I start the year with no idea how much money I'm going to earn by the end of the year. And that's not everyone's cup of tea. You know, I, I don't mind that, but then I do like a little bit of risk and uncertainty in my life. <laughs> Not for everyone. No, no. I mean, I will, I will put um, a link to to your book on the description for the show. So if anyone's listening, they can they can go and grab that. But aside from your your own book, have you got any other resources that you'd recommend for us? Oh wow. Uh... I'm afraid you caught me on the hop with that. You should have given me a chance to think about it. <laughs> um, no, I'm afraid I can't give you a, a, a quick, coherent answer on that question. No, it's okay. It's fine. I guess with when it comes to things like that, it, it's hard to... Because you're so focused on your own stuff. You know, you're so focused on, on doing your own thing, I guess. So, yeah, I mean, it must be hard to to get to a point where you're able to sort of branch out and get involved with others. And um, yeah, I quite like the website. So the, what's the, the name of the website again for us? And we'll, we'll put that on as well. Well, the, the website about the business of adventure is called thebusinessofadventure.com. And then my personal website, which is mostly focused on my motivational speaking work, is kathyodowd.com. All right, awesome. And um, where, where else could people find you? So uh, are you on social media as well? or? Oh, yes. That's part of the game these days. So, yes, if, if anybody's interested in following my kind of day-to-day -day adventures, which involves a lot of climbing and skiing and, and then a certain amount of motivational speaking and occasionally my black fluffy cat, uh, 
Instagram and Twitter, both of them at Kathy O'Dowd. I'm active on both. All right. Awesome. And for our last questions, this is one that, that I ask everyone. And we've had answers ranging from funny to silly to, well, potentially serious. It depends on, on who's listening. Mm-hmm. And it is, what would you like the world to know about you that it doesn't already know? Okay. <laughs> so I'm known for climbing Everest and for mountaineering. And I'm this motivational speaker and I talk to people about how they can, you know, get their adventures off the ground and so on. And I run social media that's full of pictures of me climbing and skiing. And it's like so active and, you know, achieving and like, dear God, it's curated. All of this is curated. (laughs) And not, not in the sense that it's not true, but in the sense that I don't post pictures on the days when I wake up in the morning on Monday and I just think, oh, I don't know. I don't know. This life is lonely and this working for myself sucks. And I don't want to go and climb a mountain and I don't want to answer my email. And I actually just want to pull the duvet over my head and go back to sleep. (laughs) And yeah, Yeah. sometimes I do. They're not that many, but there are days when I don't get out of bed. And I think that's the truth for most of us. When you look at other people's carefully curated version of success, you're seeing their highlights real. And the same with what I do. You're seeing my highlights real. You're not seeing the, the days of depression or uncertainty or, or worry that I should have done more in my life or tried harder or, or somehow achieved more and you know, everyone's younger than me and when did that happen? And like, yeah, yeah life's complicated. And even for high achievers, it's complicated. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's becoming more and more accepted now that everyone does have days where everything's great. We have days when everything's not so great, but we do spend quite a lot of time in the middle. And uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate you sharing that. And um, yeah, thanks for being a, a guest on the show, Kathy. I appreciate you, you taking the time and I'm, I'm sure we'll keep in touch. It's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you.